Hello, welcome to Movie Go Round, a film discussion podcast that rotates between different themes every week on a five-week schedule. This week's theme is New to Two. Hello, everybody. My name is Brett Stewart. Joining me, as always, my wonderful two co-hosts, David Luzader. How are you this fine evening? I am doing well. Thanks to this movie, I have gone back to just having one Quentin Tarantino movie I have not seen. Uh, that's kind of where I existed for most of my life, so I'm glad to be back in the status quo. <laughs> yeah, I was actually... We, we need to talk about on the show what we were talking about in the pre-show, which is every American college student, I think, goes through a Tarantino phase. At least male. Yeah. At least male. Yeah. And I definitely went through that and like recently came out of it. And you have some 2020 hindsight after coming out of it. But uh, joining us as well, Nicole Davis, how are you? I'm doing very well, thanks. I'm interested to see what what you guys think of this movie in depth. This was my pick for new to two and uh, hopefully a good one. Absolutely. Now, before uh, we, you know, go deep into what this film is, I do want to mention that next week is Netflix Roulette. That is a week where actually uh, all three of us essentially use a Netflix generator. It pops out three different movies, and then we pick between one of those three to watch. Uh, the reason we do it that way is simply because you might get a documentary, you might get something that's 30 minutes long, and you know what? We're going to get something bad probably, so at least give us some control over our own demise by able to pick three of them so it is lucky them that's what we spun and got it's a 2013 movie uh, this is wow they have it listed as 2014 Rotten Tomatoes and 2013 IMDb it's right on the edge and uh, it is a Cameron Diaz vehicle that no, is no it's Tony Collette Tony Collette okay Tony Collette the art makes her look like Cameron Diaz okay and and there it's a comedy drama about a musician that went missing it's it's that one movie from the 80s, but not. It's Eddie and the Cruisers. I love not. Eddie and the Cruisers. Can we watch Eddie and the Cruisers? Do you, do you know, have you ever seen the Absolutely. Eddie and the Cruisers sequel? I haven't seen it, no. I there's there's an official sequel. They're great movies. In any case, I digress. Lucky them next week is what we're going to be watching. I should note that our choices were not great. We literally ended up flipping a coin between the final two. So <laughs> lucky them got tails. Uh, in any case... Uh, we're watching Jackie Brown came out in 1997 a yeah. Quentin Tarantino movie when flight attendant Jackie Brown is busted smuggling money for her arms dealer boss Ordell Robbie federal agents want to help her bring want her to help them bring down Robbie facing jail time for her silence or death for her cooperation Brown decides instead to double cross both parties and make off with the smuggled money. Meanwhile, she enlists the help of a bondsman, Max Cherry, a man who loves her. Uh, um, this was Where a fascinating movie. From? <laughs> I got it straight from Google. When you Google a movie on the right hand side, they give you their auto generated description. So Wikipedia, basically. I'm sure it aggregates from Wikipedia <laughs> or some, something like that. Uh, now. I actually really don't like this description for several reasons. Um, The first being it kind of gives away that she's double crossing both parties because there is a point in the movie. If you've seen this for the very first time, as David and I did this week, where you might not actually be sure what she's doing. Um, And that's part of the fun for me watching this for the first time. 
And then second, I don't know if Max Cherry loves her or is just maybe like creepily infatuated. Uh, it's 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 a movie, you know. They're in love after five minutes, right? It's, uh, yeah, it's it's attraction. It's right. attraction. I was I was editing our Jupiter Ascending episode recently, uh, and go back on the feed if you if you never heard that one. But that was an issue with that film was the five minute the five minute love attraction that turns in the deep uh, lifelong love. But uh, not for Max Cherry. But we'll get to that later. So let's talk about this. I think the great introduction question from nicole is uh is this the most accessible tarantino film uh i think this might have been the only one i hadn't seen honestly uh so i think i've cleared my for me for a very long time uh the only one now i haven't seen is hateful eight and Mm -hmm. uh don't know why i just haven't seen it and it hasn't three hours yeah that's part of it it's a good one to save for a very cold winter's day just like down in a couch in a million blankets plus they destroy that guitar which never sat well oh it's so painful to watch especially when you know that it's an antique and it's (sighs) super valuable and it's just like oh god they had replicas anyway this movie (laughs) um (laughs) they have a kurt russell i think uh, it's tarantino's fault i would say he kurt russell was just doing oh i mean both of them are cool anyway this movie uh i it's hard for me to say if this is the most accessible because I have seen so many other Quentin Tarantino movies. And we will discuss as going along with it, like this movie kind of breaks from some of those Tarantinoisms. I would have to have someone who's not as familiar with Tarantino watch this and tell me. Uh, but I think for me, I just have such a mindset and expectation going into a Tarantino movie. I don't think that I can give a solid answer on that do you think that it is nicole do you think it is his most accessible i i think so i think it's certainly his least violent uh oh, yeah yeah film uh there's there are shootings but it's the actual you know wounds and gore are off screen you see like mm-hmm. blood spray here and there and that's about it um there's uh believe it or not less swearing than most of his movies (laughs) though i will say though tarantino at this time i think i'm thinking of pulp fiction and reservoir dogs because of budget constraints aren't as gory they're violent they're definitely violent yeah which i guess you could say is the difference there is violence here but it's a little more parsed out it's and even then the, the violence here is um is like, oh, bad guy shoots bad guy with gun. You know, it's really not right. um, as aggressively violent. Uh, I would say two things about this. The first is that, yes, it breaks from a lot of the uh, the tropes of Tarantino films, but I think the tropes it does break from in terms of his non his his penchant for nonlinear storytelling, uh, his penchant for gore. I think that those are tropes that can create an inaccessible environment for a lot of people um mm-hmm. just naturally when you make the story harder to follow or make it more difficult to watch uh so i think in that sense it is a much more accessible film uh and then also i think it's relatively easy to understand um tarantino has some films that get a little bit more complicated and uh claire came in an hour into this movie and i was able to spend about a minute maybe explaining to her exactly what had happened and she was able to follow the whole film just fine 
I don't know if you could come an hour into Kill Bill and have me be able to really adequately explain what's going on. Um, there's so many little nuances to that film that I don't think this has, at least not in the same way. Uh, so in both those ways, I think that this is certainly his most accessible film. Yeah, I mean, there are several scenes in which Jackie is talking to someone and she literally lays out the plan right. piece by piece. Yeah. So. Or segments of the plan, depending on the person. Right, and whether or not it's the real plan or the fake plan Yeah, also depends well, on who it is. So. It's all part of the real plan. The real plan. Except <laughs> for that last part. Yeah, it's, that, it's that's almost, where she crosses them. Yeah, it's almost a heist movie. It's like halfway between a heist movie and a, a long con sort of job. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I I do want to note that I was looking up Tarantino's tropes because, you know, I, I know some of them and I think about some of them, but I really wanted to note how many were different in this movie and how many stayed. Uh, real uh, quick, does any, was there any shots from inside of a trunk? Yes. Yeah, uh, okay, when he's cool. pushing the dude in the sure. beginning. That's one of them. Um, <laughs> yeah, so the first one Tarantino I have... Did. I have the top. Uh, I have the top nine uh, Quentin Tarantino tropes, uh, courtesy of BuzzFeed. I'm sure uh, <laughs> the impromptu dance number doesn't have it in this one. Uh, Casting yeah. of icons of the '70s in a major role. Yes, uh, that is this movie. Uh, the obligatory trunk shot has it. Yep. Uh, non-linear plots, no, with the exception of a couple brief yeah. scenes at the end. Yeah, when they're when they're actually doing the dressing room exchange, it backs up and goes forward again. Which I guess like, isn't point of view. necessarily non-linear, but it kind of is. I think that they get it, that one on technicality. Yeah, I mean, it, it, it ganks back to Max's point of view, but I don't think it is to the the degree of something like I don't know, true romance, um, fake product placement. Uh, I don't think he really has that in this movie. Um, is is Cabo Air a real airline? I guess probably not. <laughs> I don't uh, because he has, he has had a penchant in the past for uh, advertising fake products such as Geo Juice, Fruit Brute Cereal, and Teriyaki Donuts. There's uh, a Teriyaki Donuts cup in the in the food court scene. Fictional companies oh. Wikipedia. Cabo Air is an airline featured in Jackie Brown. Oh, okay. Yeah. There you go. Uh, number four, pop music from a bygone era. Yes, in this yep. movie, yep. certainly. Revisionist history, revenge fantasy. Uh, revenge fantasy, maybe a, a tiny bit because I don't know. Well, well, I I do think that I, I Jackie has some some beef with Ordell throughout this film, um, and I think that's a stretch. It's, not it's a stretch. Rev- Revenge. No, it's not. It's He's not. not getting revenge on him. Um, no. The Mexican I mean, I standoff as well. Uh, not really in this movie. Uh, well, no, there's sort of there. There are standoffs in this movie. There's the one where Ordell's got his hands around her neck and she's got a gun jammed in his crotch. Actually, yeah, that's a pretty good standoff. Uh, <laughs> that's not a Mexican standoff. The Mexican standoff is I have a gun pointed at you. You have a gun pointed at me. I learned that from another Quentin Tarantino movie, Inglorious Bastards. Right, and there's also there's also a great Mexican standoff scene in Reservoir Dogs, uh, and and then of course that number movie. one. What else could be at number one besides the gratuitous flaunting of his grotesque foot fetish? Uh, and Ooh. this is yeah, in this movie. In Hard check. Has anyone yep. ever asked him about that? Yeah, I'm sure they have, or maybe we're all collectively too afraid. Or did did he just like pull out a photo out of his wallet, like one of those wallet-sized photos of Uma Thurman's feet, and he's like, are you kidding? Look at those. 
uh, he's got a thing for him. Um, yeah, that's which is fine. You know, it's not hurting anybody. Sure. D- yeah, sure. I mean, but we all have to look at it. Uh, did anyone speaking of I'm foot fetish? This is actually not a good segue at all. It's just like, <laughs> right here. Uh, I thought Chris Tucker was going to be in way more of this movie. <laughs> And that guy is in there for a hot five minutes. Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, but you know what? He does his job, David. That's uh, right. He does his yeah. job. <laughs> I it's love just... how he has a baseball bat at the end. Like, what? What, what are you going to use a baseball Tucker? bat for? Yeah. Chris Tucker's dead. In the final scene when Ordell gets shot. Do and they you all know come... who Chris Tucker is? No. Is it, isn't Chris no, Tucker? Chris Tucker is Beaumont. Chris Tucker is the oh my guy gosh! That gets shot. I confused I confused him with the guy running Max's shop. Okay. Oh, I no, that was Tiny, how can you confuse Chris Tucker and Tiny Lister? Yeah, look at these photos here. <laughs> yeah, these these men look very different. Okay, I digress. Yeah. Um, but I do love Tiny Lister in this movie. I love Tiny Lister. Yeah, he's great I do in this. I love Chris Tucker. Um, Chris Tucker, though, <laughs> I. I do appreciate that the way Tarantino is able to push his car, you know, his trunk fetish into this movie was through having a man convince another man to hide in a trunk to inevitably kill him. It was, it was, I gotta admit, it was a pretty good plan. (laughs) That is a great way. (laughs) It was clever. And I think, you know, speaking of that, I think that's a good segue into something else I wanted to talk about, which is Sam Jackson in this movie. Uh, this is really... So when I put... Hair. Yeah, when I put <laughs> Sam Jackson in our docket, I really just put his hair because I feel like that is really the most important thing going on in this movie. Uh, and yes. I actually do feel like his hair is tied to uh, the unraveling of the film because his hair gets increasingly more greasy and undone and eventually we finally see it and it's entirety of its main at the end of the movie when he's at his worst point so i think that really the movie can be tracked through his hair and i'm only partly kidding here um (laughs) and uh when he finally see when we finally see him without a hat i i don't know i just want to know other people shared that experience uh i i just want to know that other people had that inflicted upon them i did have a hard time looking anywhere but his hair in the scenes that he was in (laughs) Uh, which is a shame because it sounds like he gave a great performance. I can't speak to his facial expressions <laughs> because, man, that hair. No, he, he does, definitely though. did. Yeah, you know, this he is... brings his he brings his trademark intensity, and he he makes it clear that while Ordell Roby is a is a cunning man, and he likes to think of himself as clever, he's actually not as smart as he believes. Right. So Jackie's is, able to manipulate him pretty well. <laughs> Which that's kind of pointed out early on in the film by uh, Bridget Fonda's character. Right, right, exactly. She kind of like calls out, like, he, you know, he thinks he's hot shit, but he's really not. And that kind of just plays out for the rest of the movie. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, this is one of the, also, um, she also makes that comment really about Robert De Niro's character, Louis. Um, is it Louis or Louis? Oh, Louis. It's Louis. Louis. Okay. No, I Louis can't remember is dumb. which. Louis, Louis is an idiot. No, Louis <laughs> is an idiot. But, but what I really appreciated about this film is. 
Honestly, I think it's one of the only times I can think of where De Niro was not the like testosterone badass lead of the movie. Um, he is greasy and raggedy and dumb in this movie. And that's not a a persona you often see him in. He's either like a mobster or in a family comedy with Anne Hathaway or he's the taxi I driver. I just refer to the intern as a family comedy. Also, did I just know the name of the movie, The Intern? <laughs> no, I knew that one too. A romantic I comedy, it, perhaps. I, I know of it. I don't even know if it's a romantic comedy. I don't. I don't think they're getting together in that movie. But isn't the no, whole movie in, like you know, the the her relationship troubles and like he's her surrogate father? Look, I don't know. Enough. I watched this movie at like three in the morning on HBO one time. Um, <laughs> I am an authority. (laughs) In any case, uh, I really don't see him in roles like this. It is different for him. He gives a really fantastic performance for somebody who doesn't have a lot of lines. He's got incredibly eloquent body language. He does a great job of seeming (laughs) bored the whole time. Uh, I'm not saying that in like a a negative way. Like Lewis just really seems like I'm here. Yeah, like bored, but trying to be polite. Right. Like, I don't really know what's going on around me, but um, what, what do you need me to do? Sure. Yeah. Right. Like that great scene where Simone's giving him her show where she's lip syncing to the Supremes. And... Oh, yeah. So biz- I wish that was revisited. That was so bizarre. Yeah. <laughs> I, so I got to throw this out here. Yeah. I might have misseen this. Is he smoking out of a penis bong? Or does that just thing just look what? very phallic? It's, I, I mean, it all bongs phallic. look like penises. No, Let's I know that, but like... <laughs> I think there's like veins and stuff on that thing that she hands him. I, I think it's just carved. I looked, because I, I wondered about that too, and I don't... <laughs> okay, I'm glad I'm not alone I, in this. I love it's this about the right proportions to be that, but I don't think so. I think it's supposed oh. to be like some sort of, you know, like those um, incognito mode, like those tiki mugs in uh, Chinese restaurants that you're zombie in. You know, I think it's it's carved like that or molded, probably. N- nice. Okay. Um, <laughs> okay. Um, boy, know. there are several reference images for this bong. Uh, no, yeah. it is a okay. It is a, there's a skull, okay, uh, which is the bull part of it, and then there's like a snake wrapped around, moving up. So it's not penis shaped. Okay, okay. Now All right, mystery we've solved. Mystery solved. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and then uh, I, I, he, I mean, you. What's up with Lew- with Lewis in this movie? I think that came from David, probably. I mean, uh, we kind of discussed that. I yeah, mean, there's part of me just... that wondered for a little while, like, is something wrong? Like, he's just got hit too many times in the head, you know? <laughs> also a possibility. Also, yeah, I think he... one of the most abrupt fil- like pieces of the film for me, having never seen it before, is him just straight up killing, uh, what is her name, Melissa Melanie. or Melanie, Melanie yeah. in the yeah. parking lot. And that's one of my discussion topics is how is everyone shooting other people and walking away from it all the time in broad daylight <laughs> in relatively busy places? This happens like at least two, three times in this movie. Um, no, and that, that, that got me too. like a gunshot going off in a mall parking lot is not going like to go in the afternoon. Like this would noticed. This is not OK. Like I can I can play like ignorant 
when it comes to like the the like the Syrian like raiders that take Doc Brown like that, that first of all they're Libyans Libyan <laughs> well like that parking lot it's it's like two in the morning or like midnight or something like that right. sure that's fine but and it was the 80s so and it was the 80s, I, I guess um but this is like happening in broad daylight he does it like in the middle of all the cars and then just like straight up walks to his car and like gets in it and drives away and yeah, later Sam was, Jackson kills was, him well, yeah, Sam Jackson killing him, I thought was, I mean, because they were kind of parked off onto a side street and they were in a car and gunshots are still really loud. I mean, no movie really properly demonstrates the set, you know, how loud gunshots actually are. Right. Uh, but that one I was like able to excuse more than, yeah, him shooting her and straight up parking lot. Nicole, you seemed like you were, you had a thought on it. No, I think I I mean, you know, obviously that was that would be likely to draw attention, but A, it's Los Angeles. B, I think <laughs> I think it's that they're they're between cars and a lot of people will mistake gunshots for fireworks if they're not experienced gun handlers and aren't or haven't been around it much. Um so a lot of people will confuse the two if they're not experienced or car and- exhaust going off. Yeah. In fact, so, um, I mean, when I was a beat reporter in Chinatown in Chicago, I, when I would go to the police precinct um, community meetings every week, uh, there would be a ton of uh, calls for gunshots. And 99% of them were not gunshots. They were usually a car exhaust. And that's why the cops like took them seriously, but also said, like, these calls are not accurately representing the amount of violence in our neighborhood um so i mean yeah there's tons of different things you can hear that are not a you know actually a gun yeah but i uh i've had the unfortunate um chance to be around a gunshot without any ear protection on and let me tell you uh yeah if you don't know what it is sure you might mistake it for a really loud car exhaust i don't think car exhaust backfiring gets that loud yes it is but very you know loud. What? Also, it's a movie. So. It's, yes, <laughs> I know. I know. I, I but, know, but okay. Well, let's let's delve back into our discussion topics. Uh, it's based on a novel by Elmer uh, Leonard. Uh, yes. Uh, better or worse for having the base story written by someone other than Tarantino? This is a question from Nicole. It's a very interesting one because Tarantino loves to write his movies. Uh, he's one of those directors, and he definitely yeah, has this. The very, only one he didn't come up with the story for it he's adapting somebody else's material right and he also has a very signature style of writing uh and even all the way down to like when he writes a screenplay his i in my opinion his cameos of himself are uh less less peter jackson and more gratuitous like at least peter jackson at least hitchcock were like very background Right, and so is Hitchcock. Um, they were in the background, and I know he totally pulls it from Hitchcock because he is that sort of cinephile, uh, but he's very gratuitous with them, uh, almost to the point where he... I mean, he is a main character in some of his films, uh, yeah. but in this movie, he only has one very brief, not visually seen cameo, and I, even that is, I think, yes. is different because he didn't write the movie. Uh, first of all, I did not know that Elmore Leonard wrote... Uh, Get Shorty and yep. Be Cool yep. and uh, 310 to Yuma. Yep. 
um, that I've learned quite a bit here today. He has had a lot of stuff that has been turned into movies and episodes of Justified. Um, <laughs> uh, back to the, the Tarantino thing. I remember this thing um, when watching this thing about when uh, the, the what's the, that, that one movie that he uh, did, I think Reservoir Dogs, uh, he like wrote, you know, he wrote the screenplay and it said on the front of the screenplay, like written and directed by Quentin Tarantino. And he was sort of an unknown quant time. People were like, you know, what the hell? Like, you can't just say like, you're going to direct this thing. But the movie had such a distinct voice to it that like, when you read it, it was like, oh, well, no one else can direct this movie the way that it's written. So I think, yeah, he does have a very distinct voice. Uh, but this movie still... I think has that voice to it. I think that this movie, you know, had, I, I haven't read the story so, or the book, so I, I can't speak to how the, the parallels and what's there and what's not. Um, but obviously like he, it resonated with him enough that he felt this could fit with what he, what he was already comfortable doing. Is he a better, uh, and maybe there's no real answer to this question, or maybe it's both. Is he a better writer or director? Uh, director, yeah. I think. Because um, I mean, my favorite is... movie of his that I've cited numerous times on this show for how absurd it is, From Dusk Till Dawn, which he, which he produced, but he also <laughs> wrote. He wrote From Dusk Till Dawn, and half did directed. not direct it. Uh, yeah. Did he direct the first half? He directed I, the first half. The first half. No, I thought when they get to the, the bar, it becomes Rodriguez's movie. Oh, I thought Rodriguez yep. did the whole movie, but wow, that's nope, what I learned today. No, nope. they half directed. Yep. There's a that. very there's a very distinct point where it switches. <laughs> yeah. I think when the vampires come out, there is a very distinct that's switch. Robert Rodriguez. Spoilers. Uh, yes. <laughs> oh come on. When when the uh, yeah. stuff is happening, it's still a Quentin Tarantino. Yeah, Spoilers for first... y'all from 1996. Uh, but yeah. yeah. No, that was that was the first movie I ever saw that took one of those really hard, hard left turns, turns yeah. in the middle. <laughs> um, but in any case, this this movie, you know, this has the... Elmore Leonard is a very snappy, rhythmic writer. His books move right along. They're, you know, people... They're, you can read one in a day uh, if you have enough time. It just, you know, they're they're excellent. Airport reads, beach reads, that kind of thing. Um, but he's a very good writer and apparently he was very pleased with the script that Quentin Tarantino wrote adapting it and Tarantino I guess was a little concerned because he changed um, Jackie's race he changed the last name from um, Jackie Burke I'm, I'm just reading the summary here on it I mean the plot in the book is in very similar yes yeah like in pretty much most ways <laughs> But I mean, you know, it's this is Tarantino's language and tone and he's it's definitely done in his style. It's just not his base story. Um, Did he and change it's very clear homage to, you know, 70s black exploitation movies? Right. And that, that's actually my question is that did he change Jackie's race in order to best align himself into a homage of black exploitation. No, he did it so he could cast Pam Greer. <laughs> so he could make he an homage of her own movies. Which is, 
in a way yes yeah because like i put that in our docket and i find it very interesting in this movie that she is homaging herself in this movie yeah um yeah she's doing a variation of foxy brown in this movie right it's like it's weirdly self-referential um in a in a way i don't think i've ever seen before uh because she's great in this movie and fantastic what pains me is that when I was reading this about this film, I was reading all about how this was a comeback for her because people had not paid attention to her in you know in her forties, and yeah. I I'm not seeing a whole lot else besides this from that time, uh, which is a no, shame because she was she's on so the L good. Word for years, after what was this? she on? The L, the L Word. Word. Yeah, she was on seventy L episodes Word. of the L Word. What is the L Word? I've never heard of this. Um, it was kind of prestige. It's was, a lesbian was, show. L L stands for lesbian. <laughs> I think it was on. Yeah, I, I can't remember what channel it was on, but it was kind of at the beginning of like during like the Sopranos era. So wait, like, the characters date, get in the committed relationships, consider having families, hook up, break up, question your sexuality. This is Sex in the City, but for lesbians. It's uh, <laughs> not quite as Okay. Yeah, I think there's a little bit less day drinking, but I don't. Yeah. <laughs> there's a lot less yeah. day drinking. Oh, All right. Well, I'm, I'm I'm glad she had a career after this, and I'd never heard of that show because yeah, she's, she's fantastic in this yeah, movie. She still works. I mean, look, she was the grandma on This Is Us. All right, people love that show. Oh, that's the truth. Yeah. So I have several coworkers who are deeply, deeply invested in the fates of people on This Is Us. Yeah. Oh, hey, she was also in Grand Theft Auto Five. So yes, she was. She was excellent. Tarantino's got this talent for, you know, people ask him if he if he picks people whose careers he wants to resurrect, and it's just he's got a much, you know, he claims that it's just he's just got a much broader, he's got a much bigger box of actors that he thinks of for casting in roles than most people in hollywood do because of the vast he's he's got an encyclopedic knowledge of movies especially Mm -hmm. movies from the 70s yeah i mean he Um, brought travolta back i mean and then and then and then like for us all phenomenon happened and and they went right back down and adele dazeem yeah yeah but it it revived his career robert forrester got a little more more i was gonna say I was going to say, yeah, it kind of helped Robert Forrester as well. Yeah. Robert Forrester didn't have an agent. It's like Quentin knew somebody who saw Robert Forrester ate at the same diner almost every morning. Mm-hmm. So Tarantino just showed up there with the script and said, right. you know, I have a part for you. <laughs> yeah, Robert Forrester is one of those blue collar actors. I mean, if you look at before this movie, yeah, he was like working, doing some stuff. But then like after this movie, he is in like eight things a year. Yeah. In small little roles, but you know, I've seen his face a hundred times. Yeah. So But I mean okay. this is his best work. And, I and a quick question about Tarantino, and I don't want to go too far down this rabbit hole because we explore this I mean, uh every film. Yeah. yeah, well I mean, but we we this particular topic we explore every once in a while now, probably in the wake of Me Too and whatnot. Uh is it weird watching a Tarantino film now that we know a little bit more about like a how he makes them and then b like his defense of maybe less than wholesome figures in hollywood um that is 
that kind of proved. I mean, that proves a little problematic for me to be entirely honest. I'm like, I I watch. I like. I really want to watch Kill Bill again recently, and I'm like, oh, I don't know if I want to watch Uma Thurman get spit on and drive a car off the road. I think uh, I don't want to defend his actions in any way. Uh, I also don't want to. Uh, what I'm trying to say is, I don't think many people were surprised when they found out Tarantino's a real weirdo. Uh, it's just kind of unfortunately because he's always been a weirdo when he says weirdo things, people are like, ah, he was always weird. Like, should we probably hold him to this? St- I, I, yeah. I, to the same standard. Yeah. But unfortunately always being the kind of weird guy who had a, who was flaunting his foot fetish in our face, you kind of get people who are already a little off put. <laughs> so they just shrug their shoulders. And I don't think it's a good thing. I don't think it's a good thing. I just think that's kind of what happened. No, he needed to be more alert. He needed to be more active. He needed to be stepping in. I mean, yes, the Weinsteins helped make his career, but he also helped make Miramax huge Mm -hmm. and the Weinstein company afterward huge because of his movies being so massively successful. Um. So it was a two-way street, and he should have exerted the influence that he had uh, to try to halt what was going on. But yeah, I find him—I don't know. I—I I, I find him uh, again I, to go back to the college era, right? Like when you're in college, Tarantino is so fascinating. It's edgy and it's bloody and it's shot with vivid colors and it's non-linear and like the f word it's the f word and then like and then you kind of come out of that and you're like did you really have to say the n word that many times um like you come out of you you discover the r rating for the first time and with tarantino that's a great way to describe it you discover the r rating with tarantino um but i think like all those bad things in one place right Uh, but i think some of it gets gratuitous to an extreme degree beyond just the gore um and i feel like that's that's echoed in part with just him as a person and i think that he wrote a way for him to rant and use the n-word a bunch of times in pulp fiction or like django unchained i mean django unchained has context because the n-word is being used a lot in slave days but also like i I don't know um and i think he's gonna struggle with that i really do i feel like uh, as these legacy directors and i think it's i think tarantino's old enough now to be considered like of a certain generation of 90s directors um Mm. where they are going to have to be more conscientious of these things because dude you can't make a star trek film and act like that like they're that's not gonna fly yeah i'd like to think that he's a smart enough guy that he's going to learn from you know all the women that are coming out of the woodwork to you know let everyone know what's been going on in the background and you know learn from from what's happened i you know the the benefit of the doubt that i would give him from just from interviews i've seen with him and everything i've seen about his films is that he's just he's an obsessive filmmaker and i think he will screen and this is not excusing it like i said he should have used his power to step in and say something Mm -hmm. um 
but I th- I think that he's an obsessive person and probably screens a lot of things out while he is making a movie and is very focused on that. Yeah, uh, I, I there's part of me that thinks that this whole making a Star Trek movie is a passion of his probably, but there's also part of him that's like, I think it's kind of some smart self-marketing. I will <laughs> do tone some, it down a little right. bit. <laughs> I'm going to tone it down. I'm going to go do this thing. That's already like beloved and we can attach my name to it, but it's not, you know, it's not, it's not a Quentin Tarantino movie. Cause it's not, I'm not writing it and putting it out with me or max or anything like that. It's him going to do like another studios property. Uh, so he's like still working and can try and like people will be like, did you see that Star Trek movie? We still love you, Tarantino. Uh, or he's going to get it like vehement Star Trek fan base, just decimate yeah. him. He's going to get or George Lucas. Hate it. This yeah. could be this could be there. The Last Jedi. I don't know. Either way, I'm into it. Uh, <laughs> Remake like the Star aftermath. Trek. The aftermath. I mean, but, I, mean I love it. Um, but, but I'm I mean, really glad. Oh, go ahead. Nicole. Particular. Oh, sorry. You go ahead, Brett. No, I was just going to say I'm really glad we talk about things like this on the show because I think having the context of looking at a film from the 90s and being able to talk about what's happening today and also what's being, uh, you know, what's happening today with the talent who made that film, I think lends further context to be able to discuss it. And I'm happy we do that, uh, even though um, it's certainly a controversial topic. And, you know, email us. What do you think of Chris Hardwick? That'll that'll be that'll be less uh, controversial. Why would you bring that up? <laughs> yeah, that's I was that's tr- I was trying to think of something like recently controversial in that movement. And that's like the most controversial thing I can think of. Also, Please by the time this comes out, that'll have been like two old news. Old, yeah. That'll be like I seven mean, more leaked to text messages later. The record, I said, right, punch so, him into the Pacific and don't let him come back inland. But. Uh, by the time, by the time this comes out, like we're, what's, what's another beloved icon? We're all going to oh, be God, like, no, I, it couldn't be Tom Hanks. Oh, don't you? <laughs> no, I, can't. I will I quit. Mean, Tom Hanks. I will quit this podcast. I might quit life. Here's the thing. Have you noticed, and this is, this is a rabbit hole, but have you noticed that if they're so beloved to a, to a wholesome degree, Bill Cosby aside, people seem to kind of just forget a little bit because if I'm not mistaken, Morgan Freeman was accused like two weeks ago and that's been oh, yeah. dead silent. Um, oh, he's been accused more than once. Right. Yeah. Like multiple women. Quiet again. Cause he knows, he knows when to shut his mouth and that's come mm-hmm. t- <laughs> Probably yeah, a good point. I'm also, also the Bill Cosby, like, all right. Oh, this is a real landmine that I've, I've not. Oh, I stepped into this. Jump on it, David. Jump on it. this field, but I have to try to navigate it. Okay. Uh, harassment is bad. <laughs> real bad. Okay, good start. Uh, <laughs> drugging women is worse. Because yeah. you, because because we, we said Bill Cosby, and it's like, well, you know, you know, Bill Cosby aside, it's because what Bill Cosby did was horrifying. And these guys who are like, uh, "Hey, buddy, that thing you did that one time is real bad," and they're like, "Yeah, you're right. I'm gonna shut up and step back." I think, yeah, that's yeah. why we're like willing to kind of, you know, I don't want to say let it go, but it's like we're not gonna spend the time dragging them into the mud as we have. Bill Cosby, who deserves it? I saw that yeah. guy do stand up. Guys, it's real conflicting oh, no. for me as a guy now doing stand up, looking back on his influences. Neither uh, were there. No, I grew up listening to his like his old records on vinyl, and I had to throw his CDs in the trash when I found out, and I was sad, but it had to be done. So 
There you go. This is a real interesting path. This movie. Discussed. This is anyway, very interesting. So where but are to, you going? To route us. To route us. To route us back, though, I do want to ask, and I think this is a good question from David. Uh, why is this the least talked about Tarantino movie? Is it because I don't it's, know. This is my favorite. Is it because okay. it's less? Um, less I can't. Th- no, I mean, I no, yeah, but it is. But also, like when I think of Tarantino films, I always think of that scene and i don't know if this movie has that scene i don't know if this has jamie fox standing on the ruins of a burned down you know white settlement in in uh django unchained i don't know if it has oh, are you talking about the stupid horse trick scene because that scene almost ruined that whole or, movie for me or, or 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 i don't think it has the scene of um uh, you know, Brad Pitt beating the dude into the baseball bat, or whoever the the other dude is that beats the dude. Do you I mean po- each movie has a that scene in it, or is yeah, there I mean, a like, style of scene in particular you're talking about? I'm saying uh, that like there is something all, dramatic and intense and usually violent that tends to happen in one scene or two scenes or three scenes in Tarantino films that I can always like vis- like vividly remember when I think of those movies. I cannot think of Inglorious Bastards without right. thinking of the baseball bat scene. And, and, and for the record, it's Eli Roth swinging the baseball Eli bat. Eli Roth. Not and Pitt. this movie doesn't have that. And I think that I, that's part of it, maybe. I think maybe. I mean, kind of to that point, this is the most understated of his films. Uh, yeah. maybe that kind of fact that it is the most accessible and it is the most um, like other movies, you know, it's so unlike the other Tarantino films that, yeah, maybe it kind of does kind of get lost in the wayside there. I mean, I I have seen all of his movies now. It took me a while to see Death Proof, but I finally caught up to it in the past oh, year. I like Death Proof. Um, which is, you know, actually it's, Death Proof is like two movies, but that's neither here nor there. Um, well, but th- this is this is Tar- this movie. Jackie Brown is Quentin Tarantino not getting in his own way. He's mm, interesting. Not putting so many flourishes on that you can't see the story anymore. Hmm. Yes, yeah. I, I can. No, no, I, I can see that. And reading the summary, where you kind of, I kind of get the sense like he didn't just take oh some characters and the slight inspiration from the book. He took the story of the book. I'm sure there's changes that you know. I don't know if I don't know if the climax took place in a shopping mall in the book, uh, but yeah, it's it's the whole. There's the whole double cross. There's the same characters are all in there, and mm-hmm. yeah, no, it's it's him kind of letting go a little bit and and telling telling a story that's not entirely his own so yeah I, he would probably not be as obsessed with those little flourishes right and i think he spends that energy trying very hard to make pam greer and robert forster look and bring out fantastic look great and bring out fantastic performances from both of them and i mean i you know robert forster got nominated for a supporting actor award for this role and it i can see why because you know there's he has one scene that's absolutely i think it's my favorite in the movie Uh, i think it's the can't remember if it's the first or second time he talks to Ordell. I think it's the second time when he talks to Ordell, when Ordell comes in to transfer the bond from 
Beaumont over to Jackie. And he's showing off and he's making threats and he's insinuating things. And, you know, Max Cherry sees right through him immediately and yeah. calls him on it. I love how unfazed he is by like everything in this movie. Yeah. So you want now you want me to guess what you do, you know. <laughs> I would assume it's got something to do with drugs, except for, you know, this, this, and this isn't going on. So it's probably something else. Doesn't, you know, you're making money and you haven't been caught. More power to you. Yeah. I love when he's telling the story towards the end. He's like, yeah, I've gotten to this guy's house, you know, this wanted criminal who might be on the run. I got into his house and I was sitting in the couch waiting in the dark for him. Like, you know, no big deal. This is what I do. (laughs) Yeah. Sitting with my stun gun in the shop. I'm like, that sounds terrifying. (laughs) Now, it doesn't sound like Tarantino necessarily stuck. Well, we know he didn't stick to the style, though, because this Kill Bill followed. <laughs> uh, so yeah. this it's not like this was a style that he would later return to, really, in, in any capacity. I mean, no, you have Kill Bill, Sin City, and Grindhouse each, right, after each, this. Each movie's kind of its own different thing, yeah. Yeah, I like guess, you know, that's fair. is apparently very close to a movie called The Great Silence. Uh, Kill Bill is Lady Snowblood all over again and this is sort of a it's it's not quite coffee or foxy brown i mean i've seen coffee that's that movie is it's it's just a little sleazy along with being you know a fun female empowerment thing because there's a lot of unnecessary breasts flying around there's actually a scene where like she gets into a girl fight and manages to rip the top off of every single woman who's fighting her. Um, and the name <laughs> of this movie again? Coffee. <laughs> uh, coffee. Pen. See? I need a pen. <laughs> but um, yeah. And I mean, so it's, it's, t- and the violence is much more gory and, you know, but it's, it's definitely got a lot of elements and tone from black exploitation movies that he's bringing in. And I think you and guys, just, you know, I think you bring up a really good point um, that every film's a little bit different. And that's probably curated uh, intentionally by him, oh, yeah. because okay. for the longest time he has said, and who knows if he'll stick to this, that it's 10 films like the core of my filmography, excluding the stuff I produce that I write, but don't direct that I partially direct there are going to be 10 films that I wrote and and directed that are my films. And then I'm done. And he's coming up on that. I think, I think he's yeah. at nine Star, uh, Yeah. Star Trek would be nine because hateful eight happens to also be his eighth film. Right. I have not heard this Star Trek thing. I know he's developing a movie about the Manson murders with uh, Leonardo right. DiCaprio. Yeah. Star Trek is, I, I believe confirmed I, that he is going to have his own Star writing Trek property. and directing it. I yes. think he's. I don't. I would suspect not writing it. I was it confirmed, or I thought that it was like st- still very likely. It's got to be collaborative. Here, I can give you. Uh, so he. So it has to be. So he's in um, talks with JJ, and JJ is going to be a producer and also to help Tarantino find a writer. So he would not write it, 
but he's right. also okay. working on a screenplay treatment himself right now, which I assume would be worked on then more with the other person. Um, but it's going to come long after his next movie, Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which is that Manson film. Um, it would be weird if, <laughs> if Star Trek was the 10th film. Yeah, I'm, I'm going to guess um, that's not going to be That's going to get amended. Well, they're also, because they're also going to do another movie set in the Chris Pine Oh universe. yeah, and also it's worth keeping in mind that it would not be part of this ten technically because I don't right. believe he's going to write it. I think he's just writing a treatment right now for someone to adapt. Uh, so mm-hmm. I he's very specific about what he considers part of those ten. Like he considers Kill Bill. I mean, Kill Bill's one technically because it's one long movie, uh, and then he mm-hmm. doesn't include a lot of movies that he did have a heavy hand in. You know, like from Dust Till Dawn probably be in there um he was the only right rodriguez didn't even write period i mean there was another writer on it but i I digress uh he gets i think he's very selective about those 10 uh who knows we can return to this in a couple years yeah Yeah, let's 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 pull it back to this movie (laughs) yes uh and our final discussion topic of the evening where do you think max goes at the end of the movie from the doesn't she say where she's heading no she's going to spain oh but max like sort of walks off into the background and goes out of focus. He totally follows he's her. Just returning. I think he's returning to his life. I think he follows. Think, no, this is a dude that has played straight and narrow or not. Maybe not straight and narrow because he's worked with a lot of crooks, but he has worked the same job for 19 years. He has, Obviously, not a lot to show for it. At least that's really what he seems to come to a conclusion toward. And it really just like drops everything kind of to take this gigantic leap of faith of doing something really radical with Jackie Brown at what he's 56 or something like that in this movie. Like he has exhibited that he is willing to go off the deep end at this point in his life. I think he follows her. Hmm. I don't know. There's just kind of something about their last interaction where, you know, he seems to kind of be like, you know, the reality of the situation is this is my life. And he's like sad and forlorn about it. But I just, I really kind of got the the feeling of the whole thing is like, no, nah, no, nope, I'm just going to get doing that's what a I'm doing. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think, I'd, I'd like to think that he follows after a few minutes, but the character, everything about his character says to me that he, he knows he's in love with her, but that she lives, she lives her life in a different way than he does. He likes some level of stability. That maybe you know, that's a good point. That's a good point. They live in different worlds. Work, and rather than have the heartbreak of trying to make it work and come apart, that it's better to to care for her from afar mm-hmm. and not go. That's a good point. Yeah. You know, I, you guys I might, know. you you both might have swayed mean, my opinion. This, there this a is another bit. thing that I love about this movie is that this is this is mature affection. This is how attraction can develop when you're later on in life and you're way more practical <laughs> about who you who you meet and why and who you try to get closer to and who you don't and whether you think realistically something will work or not rather than you know when you're younger you tend to 
you tend to just feel that attraction more than anything and just figure, well, we'll find some way to make it work. <laughs> you know, by middle age, you've got the life experience to be like, you can try to make it work and maybe it will, but it's likely that, you know, if you're X kind of person and that's Y kind of person that it won't. And so you have to be, you cut your losses. Good God. Am I hitting middle age? Cause I am getting you know, to this I don't point know. where that's, I'm like, I'm burning through a lot of like, man, affection and infatuation only gets you so far. Like <laughs> yeah, there's, there's a certain level of realism to life here. And that does not translate into following someone around at the end of their movie. And I think that's really going to bring us around to the end of this discussion. I think this was one of our better discussions. I'm going to say that on the show. I'm really proud of this discussion. Yes. <laughs> I think Nicole brought us a great film to talk about. And I watched oh, it twice. Yay! Uh, I'm my, what's my record now? Is America three for three? Yeah. I, the I great beauty yourself. still... Um, the great beauty still... Uh, I'm thinking no, about I mean, that one. Classic, 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 yeah. What were your other new to twos? Uh, Miracle uh, of Morgan's Creek. And Frailty. Yeah, so you're three for three. And Frailty. I love, I frailty. love Frailty. What a weird movie. <laughs> what a weird movie. <laughs> yeah, you're, you're three for three. Uh, I okay, think so. Good. Well, um, in that case, let's remind the audience that it is Lucky Them next week, 2013. And of course, you can find it on Netflix. Netflix did choose it for us. Uh, David, crossed, where, man. Oh, I know. <laughs> David, where can people find you online? Uh, people can find me on the Heck Yeah Comics podcast. You can also find me on the Brokebot Mountain podcast. And you can find me around the internet under the username DavLuz. That is D-A-V-L-U-Z. So Twitter, Snapchat, Instagram, you can find me there. And Nicole, what about you? Uh, first of all, quick shout out to Bridget Fonda, who we didn't even mention for more than like two seconds. In we didn't mention now. that Michael Keaton's in this movie. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> Michael Keaton has darker hair in this movie, as David pointed out in our yeah. Slack. Yep. So, yeah, Michael Keaton, Bridget Fonda, also both excellent job in this film. Um, so, yeah, uh, you can find me on Twitter under at your word whiz, Y-O-U-R-W-O-R-D-W-H-I-Z. You can find me on Letterboxd under Nicole underscore Davis, and you can find me shepherding the Movie Go Round Facebook page, which is facebook.com slash movie go round podcast. You can find us there, ask questions, give suggestions, interact. Please do. Vote. Vote. Every five weeks you have vote. the opportunity yes. to vote. We want to hear and, from you. Uh, I'm going to add another amendment to Nicole's amendment of Michael Keaton, which is every scene in this movie where he's sitting down, there is an uncomfortable amount of sound resulting from his leather jacket. And they, it's clear they made him wear this because he has to be the edgier, like the edgier of the two federal officers. And he also kind of plays like the good cop and good cop, bad cop, and then kind of like switches to just the bad cop. And like, it's not really clear. Um, but shout out to that really uncomfortable scenes, even more uncomfortable um, when he's, you know, interrogating Jackie Brown and it, he just like squeaks. Uh, it's really peculiar. Uh, but massive I, amount of gum that he's chewing. In oh, the scene. massive amount of gum. It can only be triumphed <laughs> by the massive amount of gum he chews in Spotlight. The entire movie is smacking away. But uh, <laughs> that'll do it for myself, David and Nicole. We'll see you on the other side of uh, Lucky Them and hopefully it won't be that bad. <laughs> we'll see you next week. <laughs>